ladies, gentlemen, colleagues, friends, you're all very welcome indeed to this evening's uh, uh, discussion on Trump's firsty, first 60 days in office as President of the United States of America. He was inaugurated back on the 20th of January. And we've taken this opportunity uh, to mark that first 60 days by gathering uh, some very esteemed colleagues uh, uh, in the arts and humanities disciplines from here in Trinity, but also from Columbia University and Loyola University in Chicago for this our Behind the Headlines uh, public lecture series. My name is Jane Nolmeyer and I'm the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is our Institute of Advanced Studies in the Arts and Humanities. And this series, this Behind the Headlines uh, series, um, really seeks to draw out the long-term perspectives of arts and humanities uh, research and to provide a space for respectable and respectful, sorry, not respectable, you don't have to be respectable, you have to be respectful though, um, public uh, uh, discourse which really aims to combat simplification. And when it comes to Trump, I think that's particularly important. Uh, it seems very opportune in the wake of St. Patrick's Day and the Taoiseach's uh, visit uh, to the White House and that speech that has gone uh, uh, viral to discuss some of the most pressing uh, concerns around the Trump presidency, including immigration, right-wing populism, uh, and cuts to research and education in the American uh, higher education sector. And we've got a great team uh, uh, who are going to be talking on uh, these issues and much more. As is our practice, I'm going to introduce each of our four speakers quite briefly and then hand over uh, uh, to them uh, and, and they'll speak in the order that I'm introducing them. Uh, our first speaker is uh, Dr. Elizabeth Tandy uh, Shermer, Ellie, uh, of uh, Loyola University in Chicago, who's currently a visiting research fellow at the Trinity Long Room Hub. Uh, she's uh, here working in collaboration with the School of Histories and Humanities. And Ellie will draw on her extensive research on American political history to discuss the long-term trends in uh, right-wing populism, but also the US's, uh, the electorate's dissatisfaction uh, with the party system and America's preference for strong uh, men uh, politics. Um, I should just simply note that Ellie is here working on a fascinating study exploring the mechanism, the funding mechanism at central to America's market-based uh, post-secondary education system. And uh, those of you who came to her talk during the, the week will... Uh, Ireland has a lot to learn of what not to do, if I can put it as crassly as that, uh, by uh, 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 reading uh, Ellie's study. Uh, our second speaker this evening is Dr. David Kenny, who's an assistant professor in the School of Law here at Trinity. And he's going to draw on his uh, knowledge of American and comparative constitutional law to discuss the US Constitution and uh, Trump. 
uh, how he might challenge constitutional principles and the prospect of the constitution being invoked to remove him from office. Uh, so Dr. Kenny, uh, as I say, is based here in our law school, but he was also uh, a Fulbright uh, scholar at Harvard Law School and during the 2016 election was a visiting scholar at Washington and Lee University, uh, which is uh, in, in Virginia. Our third speaker this evening also has a very strong American connection, Dr. Uh, Jacob Erickson from Trinity School of Religions, Peace Studies and Theology, uh, who's going to look at immigration and Islamophobia and um, fascinating evidence of religious resistance to Trump's agenda and his executive uh, orders. Um, uh, Jake previously taught uh, religion and environmental studies in Minnesota, and he joined us here in Trinity back in uh, September. So we're obviously delighted to welcome uh, uh, Jake. And then uh, uh, Dr. Eileen uh, Giluli from uh, Columbia University. Uh, and she's going to be reflecting tonight on the challenges posed by Trump to the US uh, higher education and research uh, uh, sectors. Um, Eileen is the Executive Director uh, of the Society of Fellows and Heyman Centre for the Humanities and Professor uh, of English and Comparative uh, Literature at uh, uh, Columbia. Um, I'm really delighted Eileen is here this evening because Trinity and Columbia have very recently uh, signed, uh, I think, a very uh, significant uh, collaborative uh, 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 agreement are put in place whereby we're going to be offering a 2 plus 2, in other words a joint undergraduate degree programme uh, and uh, uh, students will be graduates of both Columbia and uh, Trinity and that's kicking off um, uh, next year. And in, uh, in addition to that undergraduate programme, uh, we at the Trinity Long Room Hub are very keen to be working with the Heyman to develop very close research collaborations uh, uh, with Columbia. So tonight um, is the beginning of, uh, 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 I hope, a, a set of very, very engaging interactions uh, with Columbia. So without further ado, could you join me now in welcoming our first uh, speaker this evening, uh, uh, Ellie Sherman. Ellie. So I need to thank first uh, y'all for coming out tonight, uh, but also for Trinity Long Room Hub for both inviting me to speak tonight, um, but also accepting me as a visiting research fellow, which for two of this extraordinary weeks. I'm here to tell you that American history can give us a lot of ways to understand how on earth a businessman more famous for his brand in declaring bankruptcy became president. First, in regards to populism, is a term increasingly abandoned about in, in reference to current reactionary movements around the world. But in the U.S. context, it can refer to either a short-lived 19th century political party or a political rhetoric that historians have found to be powerful throughout U.S. history. It trades in a David and Goliath rhetoric of the many weak versus the powerful few. And what's really interesting about it is it can, can be found across the American political spectrum. And it should make sense the way that Americans love to talk about the mythology of their finding of the many, the many weak against powerful King George and the British, even though that it's actually quite more complicated than that, especially when you get into the actual founding of the U.S. But what's really interesting, most experts have focused um, excuse me, in recent de decades, experts have focused mostly on how, um, on how populists on the right, whose demands have often seemed contradictory, ever-changing, conspiratorial, and frankly, nonsensical. 
Now, most experts have again focused how these right-wing populists have been the scourge of Democrats, that they just have been besting them over and over again. But what's important about right-wing populists, though they may have been an important part of helping modern conservatives take over the Republican Party in the middle of the 20th century, and then became very important to that very conservative um, Republican Party's base, conservative leaders were never comfortable with including a lot of these populists in their movement, and indeed it actually made a lot of Americans within the Republican Party uncomfortable. More importantly, right-wing populists have improved themselves as much of a threat to established Republicans as Democrats. And the two best examples of that are two failed presidential candidates. The first, my favorite to talk about, is Alabama Governor um, George Wallace. And y'all might know him for standing in front of the University of Alabama in the early 60s saying segregation then, segregation now, segregation forever. Well, just a few years later, in 1968, He's running as an independent. He had been trying for a while to get the Democratic Party nomination. Wasn't going to happen. But in 1968, he's running against that Tweedledee, Tweedledum system, saying there's no difference between those two um, parties and that they're both against the common man. At that point, it was just presumed that what he meant was the common white man. Now, what's really fun about 1968, Nixon loyalists like to say this is when the Republican Party want, figured out how to win over the solid Democratic South, that they had that Southern strategy. I encourage you all to go take a look at the electoral map because you'll see that, gosh, George Wallace won a handful of Southern states. And more importantly, if you look at the districts, he actually won some districts far outside the South, the most infamous being those in working class Detroit because he had such appeal outside of it. And what's really important about him is how you can see just what a threat he was, that that was the last bipartisan effort to get rid of the Electoral College, where Richard Nixon worked with his opponent, um, then a very powerful Democratic senator, to try and get rid of the Electoral College. It failed in the Senate, which is a real shame, because um, it would have actually um, probably passed in the states, given the knowledge that we have of, of, the, of the electorate at the time. My next favorite populist to talk about is independent Texas billionaire Ross Perot, who some of y'all may have remembered uh, running in 1992. And he had this incredible agenda that he sort of sent out our broadcast on CNN and also these really fantastic TV infomercials that y'all can go look up on, uh, on YouTube. He's pro-law and order, which is a code word in the US for I'm going to sort of imprison people of color who are making cities unsafe. He also hated NAFTA. He's the one who coined the term that giant sucking sounds of jobs going um, to Mexico. He also supported some restrictions on guns. He was also pro-business. He was also okay um, with abortion, and he hated both parties. Now, what's really interesting about him, he didn't win any electoral college votes like um, Governor Wallace actually managed to do, but he won over 19% of the electorate. And what's really interesting about this, we're still debating this, and we probably will be forever, we think that it's him sucking votes away from the Republican Party and some Democrats that might actually have made it possible for Bill Clinton to have won in 1992. So thinking about the next right-wing populist, Donald Trump, besting the Clinton couple just a you know, short time later is actually quite powerful, just less, uh, about, uh, less than 30 years later. Now, right-wing populists have often shocked pollsters in how well they've done because Americans don't admit that they'll vote for him. And that's really a lot of the surprise of the election day. But part of Trump's appeal in the Republican primaries in the general, where he again defied pollsters, he was something different. And when we look at the success of right-wing populists on the national level, both also the ones who won local, state, and congressional races because running against both parties 
or the party establishment. And that's um, symptomatic of a growing dissatisfaction among the American electorate. Turnout in presidential elections is rarely breaks 60%. The last time it did was in uh, 2008 for Barack Obama. Midterm elections are even worse. Since 1968, they have not broken 50%. And that's where Congress has actually turned over completely. Still the most powerful branch of government. Worse yet, the primaries in 2016, when there was actually a huge spike in the participation that still only meant that 9% of Americans actually participated. And that reflects the fact that there's a rapid, been a rapid decline of party membership. And that's the thing that actually gets people out to vote. And here's some really fascinating figures for you. At this point, only 25% of Americans actually identify as Republicans. 31% as Democrats and 42% those independents. And historians usually explain those numbers as growing distrust of American politics in the wake of the Watergate scandal that led Nixon to resign from office in the early 70s. That's why we think about 1968 as really you know, apocryphal about the decline. But declining participation also reflects efforts to disenfranchise Americans by making it harder to vote. And also a sense amongst the electorate that change is not impossible. That there's nothing but paralysis in the government. And actually, we've seen throughout um, both the Clinton and the Obama presidencies, the government actually shutting down over fights between the budget. And finally, the, um, the increasing power of the court, where you finally get something huge like Obamacare passed. And actually, we all have to wait and see what then non-jurists um, were actually going to decide about it. But the politicians, particularly running those for presidents, promised voters a lot when the Constitution didn't give the president all that much power. And the president especially doesn't have all that much day-to-day -day oversight um, as the bureaucracies housed in the executive branch have expanded. Yet Americans increasingly are promised to expect a strong man who they'll actually meet. We think a lot of this uh, tracing back, maybe it's first to Teddy Roosevelt with his very historic train tool when we first started using the primary system in the US, but it was actually his um, uh, you know, cousin of his, FDR who actually had the fireside chats where he personally explained to Americans the New Deal. It was the first time that the majority of Americans would be able to have heard their president's voice. He's also the one who, did, who, who got to sign in so much legislation in his first 100 days that he set a new benchmark of expectations about what presidents would do immediately. And it's gotten even worse if you actually take a look at every Republican said, I'm going to do this on day one. Regardless of the fact, that doesn't actually make any sense in terms of the constraints imposed by them on that American system of checks and balances between the state, local, and federal, but also the three branches of government, and just how much they have to oversee. And we can see that that's actually happening. In the 20th century, less and less oversight by the president is possible as the president's image, and especially one of strength, becomes more important. Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Nixon turning to Madison Avenue to make him seem more presidential, and finally Ronald Reagan, the one who single-handedly made it morning again in America. Now, what's really fun about this, there was actually a really interesting commentary about this in the U.S. Um, going uh, in, in the general election, and I encourage you to go take a look at Vox, who said it. They said the, the nature of the, uh, the contemporary presidency is heavily gendered. It is very masculine to run for office. You have to stand and give speeches. And yet it's actually very feminine how you actually government, govern. You actually have to listen and coordinate, which is something Hillary Rodham Clinton was actually really good at. Which is why she was very popular with the State Department as a U.S. Senator, and actually, to be honest, as First Lady and how she could uh, handle policy. And I throw that out there, because maybe that's what actually helped her win the popular vote and even be acceptable enough for some Republicans to vote for her. 
Um, so just remember, much as it seems, it is Donald Trump's America now. He's in the highest office. The majority of electorate actually didn't vote for him. That's a thought. So uh, thank you very much for coming. It's uh, a real pleasure to attend this uh, group therapy session that we're uh, having tonight. Um, my topic is Donald Trump and the US Constitution, and it's a vast topic, so I'd like to dive straight in and try and touch upon some of the biggest issues that are cropping up at the moment. So first and foremost, I'd like to talk about this famous immigration order, the Muslim ban, and this question of whether or not it is constitutional. Because as I'm sure you are aware, two courts last week, one in Hawaii and one in Maryland, temporarily suspended this order pending further hearings by the courts because it is possibly unconstitutional. Now, why is it possibly unconstitutional? The reason the courts gave is that it constitutes a discrimination against religion, which is a contravention of the principles included in the First Amendment to the US Constitution. Now, what's interesting is how the courts could find this, even though if you read this order, you will not find mention of Islam or Muslims. You will in fact find no religious language whatsoever. What you will find is an order that restricts issuing of visas and green cards for a certain period of time to people who are citizens of six specific predominantly Muslim states. And since religion is not mentioned, you might think then that it would be difficult for this to be a religious discrimination. And in fact, it would usually be very difficult to prove this because courts in the United States are very reluctant to look behind what is on the face of the law, to look behind what the law says, into the intentions of the people who wrote it. Particularly when the president does things for the purposes of national security, it is extraordinarily rare for the courts to search for the intentions of the president in doing that. But when religious discrimination is alleged under the First Amendment, courts become willing to some degree to look at just that, to look at whether or not there is a hidden religious bias, despite the fact that that is not apparent on the face of the law. And the judge in the Hawaiian case said, in fact, if you look at the context around this order, it's not even that well hidden, the uh, bias at play. He said, you only have to look to Donald Trump's campaign. He pointed to the many anti-Muslim sentiments voiced by Donald Trump during the primaries and the general election. He pointed in particular to the statement made by the campaign after the San Bernardino attack in December of 2015, calling for an immediate ban of all Muslim immigration into the United States. And he pointed to the extraordinary statement of Rudy Giuliani on a cable news programme when he said that Donald Trump had asked him and others to find a way to do this legally, that is, to ban Muslims in a manner that would not raise legal questions. Now, the judge said in that context it was clear what the real purpose was. But how does Donald Trump defend this? How will he defend it as this gets appealed up the line, perhaps even to the US Supreme Court? Well, they make several arguments. First of all, they point out religion, again, is not mentioned anywhere. <coughs> Second of all, they say, if this is a Muslim ban, it's a very bad one. It doesn't ban all predominantly Muslim countries, for example, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, now excluded from this order. And also, it bans everyone from these countries, not merely people of a particular religion. So they say the reason these countries have been selected is not for a religious basis, but because of suspicions about terrorism and flawed screening processes in those countries because of the difficulty of identifying who particular individuals are when they apply for a visa. And moreover, the administration says, the statements of a candidate 
are not the statements of a president. People say all sorts of crazy things in campaigns. That doesn't mean that that is why they act as president. And so they argue that Donald Trump is not acting on the basis of a religious bias, but has made a genuine national security determination that the courts should expect. Now, I think anyone watching the context of Donald Trump's campaign and presidency would rightly be sceptical of that claim. But we're not dealing with common sense, unfortunately. We're dealing with constitutional law. And I think, even though I find this order personally quite repellent, I think it is quite possible it will be upheld on appeal, because there is insufficient evidence that President Trump, rather than candidate Trump, has shown evidence of religious bias. I think it's very interesting, potentially very difficult for the courts, but I wouldn't be shocked to see it finally upheld at the end of the day, in spite of the many problems with it. The second thing I'd like to talk about is Donald Trump and constitutional culture. Because in many ways, what's written down in the text of the Constitution seems like it should give us everything for good government. It should tell us everything a president can and can't do. But the reality is very different. Constitutions are never complete frameworks for government. And into a constitution structures, all kinds of practices and conventions grow up. All kinds of de facto rules and rules of thumb about what a president should and shouldn't do. And Donald Trump has proven remarkably effective at challenging those conventions. He has booked all kinds of trends that we thought were essential for presidents or presidential candidates. We thought that presidents had to reveal their finances before they went into office. Now we know better. We thought, for example, that presidents would have to put their assets into a blind trust to avoid conflicts of interest. It turns out that they don't. We thought we knew how a president would behave with the press, how he would behave with foreign leaders, how he would choose not to accuse his predecessor of federal crimes casually on Twitter. It, instead, we're learning, in fact, the president might behave very differently from that. And the problem is that many of the rules that we associate with good governance and with the American presidency are not written in the Constitution. They are these informal, conventional rules that Donald Trump has challenged, and he has challenged successfully because he is the president, and he continues to be the president. And the concern is that if he successfully challenges these constitutional conventions about what it is appropriate for the president to do, he might end up having a lasting impact on American political culture. Because the Constitution is only the framework, and it is the practices that grow up within it that make the presidency what it is. And the potential impact of Donald Trump on American political and constitutional culture I think is very significant, and something perhaps that isn't discussed as often as it could be, and something perhaps people might want to take up in questions. The final thing I would like to discuss today is supposed to be, I suppose, a feel-good topic. Could Donald Trump be removed using the mechanisms in the Constitution as is? But the answer, unfortunately, is not terribly optimistic. Yes, of course he could, but don't count on it. So the Constitution provides, in Article 2, that presidents can be impeached on a charge of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanours. A high crime or misdemeanour is a crime associated with a public office. It's difficult for private citizens to commit high crimes in this way. It's associated with your role as president. And if you want to impeach the president, you have to persuade Congress to levy this charge of treason, bribery, or other high crime or misdemeanour. And Congress has to do that by a majority vote. You then have the Senate trying that charge. The Senate has basically a mini-trial, where they hear from the President, hear from other witnesses, and then the Senate must vote, and two-thirds of the Senate, 
has to vote to remove the President because of this charge for the President to leave office, at which point Vice President Mike Pence would take over. Has Donald Trump committed any high crimes or misdemeanors? Well, there is an argument that he has. Perhaps the most compelling argument revolves around this very obscure clause of the US Constitution known as the Emoluments Clause. The Emoluments Clause says that the President and other officials cannot take any payment or other emolument whatsoever from a foreign state. This rule was put in, believe it or not, because Benjamin Franklin received a diamond-encrusted portrait of King Louis upon leaving France, uh, and they were concerned about diamond-encrusted portraits uh, knocking around the early republic. So in any event, the emoluments clause is a problem potentially for Donald Trump because he receives, in the course of his business dealings, payments from certain foreign governments, such as the Chinese government that rents space in Trump Tower. Now, there is an argument that this could constitute impeachment, uh, an impeachable offence. There are other arguments as well. But ultimately, I think those arguments don't matter so much because there is no prospect, I think, of Donald Trump being impeached by this Congress or this Senate. You would have to persuade a majority of Congress, which would have to include a significant number of Republicans, to vote in favour of impeachment. And you would have to persuade a huge number of Republican senators to vote to convict Donald Trump of a charge in order for him to be impeached and removed from office. And there is no evidence of that happening. And I think, unfortunately, it's wishful thinking to think that it might. In the event that something radically more serious than we have currently experienced happened, perhaps it's possible, but I wouldn't count on it. Similarly, there's some talk of him being removed, perhaps, under the 25th Amendment for being unfit to serve in office. Again, I don't think that is plausible, but I'll happily discuss that in questions if anyone would like. To conclude, I think the concern here is this is only the start. We're only 60 days in. We already have the President pushing against many constitutional limits and being very angry when he hits those limits. He called one federal judge a so-called judge. He called another court judgment a disgrace. Is it possible that Donald Trump will continue to offend the US Constitution? And if so, could he become so angry about this that he could even defy the courts, maybe ignoring a court judgment or a court order, and defying the constitutional order? Now, if that happened, that would constitute an incredibly grave constitutional crisis, the likes of which we haven't seen in living memory or even beyond that in the United States. But there's nothing right now to suggest things will get that bad. I think the bigger concern is that over the next four years, there's going to be a very uneasy and very rough relationship between the President and the Constitution, that highest law that both empowers and constrains it. Thank you very much. Uh, by now, uh, we might all be a little bit exhausted about talking about Donald Trump and the Trump administration, so kudos to you all for sitting, sitting here. And I'm grateful to be with this particular panel um, on this experience of the first 60 days in um, of this administration, and I keep thinking of 60 days later, which makes me think of the zombie horror film 28 days later, which just leads to another post-apocalyptic spiral. Um, I come to this panel as a theologian who believes that the religious imaginations and theological stories that spin out into the world, however they do, actually matter. They matter for the materiality of our bodies, our politics, our arts, and how we imagine the world. 
religious and theological ideas and stories told, whether they be in religious communities, outside of them, in legal pronouncements and political decisions and determinations and everyday conversations between random friends on the streets, affect our daily ethical lives, shape who we are, shape who we imagine ourselves to be, and lead us to act in different ways. Whether we're religious ourselves, or non-religious, or atheist, or spiritual, or whatever name one gives to themselves, stories of religious worldviews has a way of getting loose into the world, our political worlds, reconfiguring our imaginative terrains, politics, practices. They haunt us in their violent histories, uh, in their beautiful histories, in stories of civil rights, in stories of learning to grieve, in stories of experiences of wonder, in oppressive histories of patriarchy and liberations from patriarchy, they hit us in every direction, whether we like it or not. And so my role as a theologian here is to ask and slow down and think what kind of stories, religious or theological, are emerging in these first 60 days of the Trump administration? What stories are being told about religion? In that, I can do a panel with certain reservations and convictions of my own. I'm an American academic theologian with stakes. I work as an environmental ethicist on climate justice and climate change, and I'm worried about Trump's rollback on the EPA. I come to this as a queer man who is worried about my own particular rights as an American citizen. I come to this as a feminist scholar who is worried about the interaction of personal and political and the violent statements that Trump has made about women in the past. I name those not by way of introduction to myself, but by as a way of saying that some of us feel convicted or affected in multiple ways by these first 60 days. A lot of people are politically exhausted in the United States because of the conversations ongoing. The personal and the political are intimately related, and it's easy to get lost in the whirlwind of feelings of that. My role as a theologian, again, is to slow down and ask particularly what stories are being told here, to slow down. In a religion and culture forum, a friend and colleague, Kent Britton-All, at the University of Chicago, noted that one of the best things that scholars and activists and other thinkers can do is to cultivate better habits of what the academia, academic world, what liberal arts do best, slow down and think complexly about issues. He wrote that we strive to be careful with language, understanding its possibilities and limitations. We insist that understanding something well requires preparation and training and dedication and time, which is not something that our current political moment is allowing us to do, which is why we're here. We recognize that no problem that demands our attention has an obvious solution immediately. I'm not going to tell you how you should behave in response to the Trump administration. Nuance is going to be our best contribution, thinking academically in the struggle. The way we handle time and interrogation can disrupt the moment. And I could say something here about the religious motivations of Trump, his religious upbringing in a Presbyterian church in New York City, uh, the pastor that cultivated, that he says his sermons were amazing, Norman Vincent Peale, who another American theologian thought was corrupting the Christian gospel with health help theory. Um, but I'm not going to do that. I don't want to psychologize him. I want to think about the stories emerging from his work. 
And in that, I want to think about the immigration orders and what religious stories are being told out of those implicitly, whether they be there or not. And so three points, one on religious identity and Islamophobia, another on religious resistance to Trump's agenda, and a third on the need for religious literacy and pluralism in the current moment. Uh, firstly, the immigration executive orders have been popularly, and I really appreciate my colleague here calling out and giving an introduction to what's being called the Muslim ban and the Muslim ban light. <laughs> um, there may not be uh, an explicit refusal of Muslim immigrants in these particular bans, but the seven countries targeted in the first ban and in the sixth and the second are more predominantly Muslim uh, in, in identity. That says something. In the first executive order, there was a special provision for Christian minorities, or at least religious minorities, uh, who are refugees to come to the United States. This was, a, this was something that Trump said was, we need to protect Christians who are being persecuted abroad and bring them to the United States. So the double effect at first of banning Muslim-majority countries, delaying the refugee program, and giving special preference or a Christian kind of privilege to certain religious identities. He has a, an advisor named Sebastian Gorka who's been going on a lot of news programs lately and in a recent uh, uh, interview with National Public Radio, uh, the interviewer asked Gorka whether Trump believes that Islam is a religion and Gorka refused to answer refused to actually say, yes, Islam is a legitimate religion, and instead uh, uh, chose to say that Trump's rhetoric around Islam, saying uh, radical Islamic terrorism, is a fundamental contribution that Trump is making. The pieces that I see coming out of this are a certain kind of caricature and re reduction of what Islam is, a religion of over one and a half billion people, um, that, that the way that Trump's religious rhetoric in the campaign and the way that his advisors and uh, even certain ways in which he speaks as president construct Islam seem to be a kind of what ethicist Emily Towns calls a cultural production of evil, a caricature and reduction of what a certain identity of people are out there and as a threat. Um, that is to say, Islamophobia, fear of Islamic identities as terrorist threats externally that we should protect ourselves from. Um, the American Academy of Religion, which I belong to, said that this sort of reduction of what Islam is poisons public understanding, cultural understanding of what Islam is in particular, but also what religion is generally. So not only is perception of Islam harmed, but perception of religion more broadly publicly is harmed as well. Um, the reduction of an understanding of theological and religious complexity. Uh, it seems to be a certain concerted effort by the part of the administration to, to define what they think a religion is and use it as a scapegoat. Um, in banning refugees, and this goes to the second point uh, of these six countries now in the second uh, executive order that was, that's now been halted, uh, one of the unexpected turns uh, that the Trump administration didn't foresee was that one thing that unites Christians, particularly in the United States, from both conservative and progressive spectrums is 
global refugee services. So evangelical organizations like World Vision, uh, even conservative organizations like Focus on the Family, mainstream liberal Protestants, all began to speak out about the ban precisely because it impeded their mission to serve refugees, relocate refugees, and relocate them to the United States as a sign of welcome and neighborliness. Um, you have uh, emergent movements dealing with, with immigration, uh, like the sanctuary movement now, uh, where churches are signing up um, to house undocumented uh, immigrants in the United States and refuse to give them up to the government. So churches are sort of responding holistically to the Trump uh, immigration, uh, immigration policy. Um, and finally, I, I would just say that, that one of the things that I think is most important, and we can talk about all of these features and get into more detail and such as we go, but one of the most important things that, that is emerging for me um, in, in these larger conversations, political conversations, is the importance and need for religious literacy. Uh, most Americans don't have a full sense of the diversity, not only of Islam, but of global religions whatsoever. There's no sort of uh, in many schools, there's not religious education programs, um, as there is, say, here in the um, uh, there's, uh, uh, there, there are caricatures that emerge of religious people. Um, there are long-standing questions of religious identity in public. Um, the e, uh, EJC ruling on religious expression in the workplace this week is, is part of that. Um, and, and so the question is, and the, the desire that I think that is most pressing to me in the first 60 days of the Trump presidency is an emergence of a re-articulated need to educate publicly on what the diversity of religious experience and identity is, the complexity of religious identity as it manifests itself, um, and the, the new and re-emerging traditions of, of Christian and non-Christian, Jewish, Muslim, social justice traditions that are really uh, refusing to go along with the larger narratives that the Trump administration is, is, is bringing about. So I'll end there. Um, I think the greatest impact has been on the uh, his ability to incite fear on U.S. campuses um, to levels that I don't think we've seen since the anti-communist hysteria in the 1950s. So on the bright side, if you can call it that, this fear is awakening an equally powerful sense of outrage and resistance to an agenda that threatens the health, the, uh, the health, the intellectual freedom, and the independence of the university. Um, to date, and mind you, we're only 60 days in, as you know, that means we have, if he starts out his full term, um, as David Kennedy suggests, we'll have him for another 1,401 days because there's a leap year there. Um, <laughs> the most alarming of these policies include the so-called Muslim ban, that we've heard a lot about, um, and deportation of undocumented students generally. Um, a proposed $9.2 billion cut in federal funding for education the complete elimination of the National um, Endowments for the Arts and Humanities that were established in 1965, and billions more in cuts to scientific, technological, and medical research, including those to the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of Health. 
As the chronicle of higher education is observed, these massive cuts, when paired with the restrictive immigration policies they're trying to put through, constitute a dangerous assault on the United States' preeminence in science and technology, which, when you come to think of it, is a very odd way to make America great again. So whether or not the Muslim ban holds, the threat of such a ban has provoked extraordinary anxiety in the <coughs> university communities for several reasons. The Muslim ban is only one expression of Trump's larger antipathy to non-white immigrants. That is, if I were to guess, I'd say that the 50,000 undocumented Irish uh, nationals are not likely to be deported anytime soon, that Enda Gunn was in the States recently you know, uh, advocating about, um, especially as they Irish seem to be associated in the Republican mind with the game of golf. I don't know if you've heard this, but Paul Ryan um, made some comment about how great the Irish, but the Irish game to um, Americans was the game of golf. Um, in addition to tens of thousands of students from the Middle East in, the United, in, in U.S. universities who are under threat, there is at least an equal number of undocumented students, mostly from Mexico and Central America, Central American countries, who came to the U.S. as children in the company of their parents. It's impossible to determine precisely how many of these there are, since there's obviously little benefit to outing oneself as being undocumented. But we do know that more than 750,000 young people are participating in a program that um, Obama established in 2012, which is called the Deferred Action Childhood Arrivals Program, otherwise known as DACA which grants a renewable two-year period of protection from deportation to certain undocumented immigrants who came to the U.S. as children. And there's an estimated four million who are eligible, or would be. Um, Trump vowed during his campaign to rescind DACA, and even though in the first few days following the inauguration, he backed off, he's saying he was going after bad people instead, there have been DACA youth who have, in fact, been caught up in immigration raids and have been remanded to detention centers. So the universities rightly see Trump's proposed immigration policies as not only interfering with the university's commitment to participate in the international exchange of information and ideas, but as an attack on the university community itself. Like many cities in the U.S. and churches, Many college campuses, both private and public, have declared their commitment to providing sanctuary to students, faculty, and visiting scholars who are in danger of being harmed, is the wording of most of these declarations, by Trump's immigration policies. Moreover, as my own president, uh, university president, Lee Bollinger, recently wrote to the faculty and students, the alarming interactions between Trump's proposed policies and the rise of private acts of intolerance against all minorities just cannot be ignored. We are struggling to cope with a new reality of being tolerant. Few would argue with the New York Times assessment that Mr. Trump's angry offerings and homophobic rallying cries during the campaign have fomented white nationalist hate uh, crimes and rhetoric on U.S. college campuses. It's particularly hard to know how to deal with that hateful rhetoric, how to combat it, seeing that universities are committed to the free exchange of information and ideas. 
Um, just this past Friday, it was started this past Friday, there's been a, um, an intense discussion um, over a Columbia email listserv about how best to respond to an upcoming talk by uh, an author named Charles Murray, who in the 1990s wrote a book called The Bell Curve, which has been called racist and incoherent and bad science and all of which I agree with, but who recently visited Middlebury College. He's on a book tour. He's this resurrecting this book that's two, days, uh, two decades old in Vermont recently, um, where the hostile, violent reception he received from the students was a gift to the right-wing media. Um, so Republicans of all stripes view college campuses as hotbeds of progressivism, and they would be right, which is why the right-wing organizations such as the American Enterprise Institute, which is responsible for Murray's recent college campus tour, has been advertising for, quote, it shows up in student newspapers and various things, they're looking for up to six driven and savvy student leaders per campus to help them, quote, strengthen the competition of ideas on college campuses. In other words, to provide them with a forum to proselytize their free market and ultra-nationalist views, their desire to build, quote, a better world through free enterprise and American leadership. That is also why one of the largest and in this past election most crucial groups to have suffered from targeted voter suppression were college students. The, the gutting of the 1965 Voters' Rights Act, which basically uh, required states to submit their uh, uh, voting uh, eligibility, their requirements for voting eligibility to federal government so that they could uh, groups as in Alabama and pre-65 where voters were, uh, black voters were not permitted to vote basically because of, um, because of the, the restrictions. So what happened is that um, two years ago the Supreme Court gutted that Voters' Rights Act which permitted states to enact laws that required voters now to present multiple forms of um, ID of the sort that students especially don't have. So, for example, a driver's license, a rental lease, and a utility bill. It's no wonder then that, quote, although millennials nationwide still favored Democrats by 18 points, that margin of support was five percentage points lower in 2016 than in 2012, and more than 20 points lower in some of the swing states that Obama won and Clinton lost. We should also note that higher education in the U.S. has become alarmingly expensive at both public and private universities. The cost of attending UC Berkeley, which is a state institution for an in-state resident, is currently about $35,000 a year. At Columbia, it's about $72,000 a year. Moreover, the Republicans took over the legislature in 2012. When that happened, the federal loan interest rate doubled. It went from 3.4 to 6.8%. Arguably, poor white men, as a demographic group, are hit hardest by these rising costs and are less likely to attend college because because of them. University, the university commitment to diversity, and that commitment makes it likelier for women and minorities to receive scholarships than it does for poor white men. 
They are also the group that supported Trump most fervently, at least loudly. And, and in my most cynical moments, I don't believe that this was at all a coincidence. I think that rich white men need poor white men to maintain their power. Terrifying as the proposals to defund education and research are that Trump has been espousing recently, they still need to pass the legislature where even some of the most hardline and hawkish Republicans at Capitol Hill are balking right now. I think one of the ways that the jury is out is that because we only are 60 days in, I think David Kennedy's right, there's no possibility of this being impeached now, but give it another 360 days. Um, um, and the erosion of support in, the, in Congress, um, which is going on now, will probably continue. Pretty much every year since the establishment of the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Arts in 1965, there has been some Republican congressman who's introduced a bill to, to defund it or abolish it entirely. But those bills never go anywhere because most congressmen know that how, how, much, how much their constituents actually benefit from endowment grants that support their local museums, their libraries, community organizations and that some of the strongest state humanities councils that get their major funding from the national endowments are in fact in the red states. Oklahoma and Arizona, for example, have two very powerful state humanities councils. Moreover, the amount of money that would be saved is so small that their elimination would virtually have no effect on reducing the federal budget. The 296 million spent on the endowments together is only about one one hundredth of one percent of the federal budget. Indeed, many people have pointed out the irony that it would cost um, it, it to, uh, the irony that it could cost more than both the endowments combined to keep Melania and Barron in New York City while Trump is in the White House. And so I don't know. Is that mine? Yeah. Thank you.